This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from Galatians 3. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian to lead us to Christ in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is God's word. Please be seated. So in today's uh, sermon, I want to focus in on verse 28 of chapter 3. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And as we're going through chapter 3 and uh, using multiple sermons uh, to cover these verses, I want to stop and focus on verse 28 for two reasons, okay, two reasons. First, uh, this verse is one of the most courageous and countercultural things Paul says uh, in Galatians or any of his epistles uh, for that matter. And so while this resonates with us ideologically, and even if we violate it functionally, while it relates with us ideologically, uh, this was an extremely countercultural thing for Paul to say and for Paul to write and for Paul uh, to believe in his day. And second, this verse in our day, particularly over the past few decades, has become one of the more popular and frequently uh, referenced verses in Galatians. Uh, Many times this verse is referenced in line with Paul's teaching and Paul's theology, but also sometimes this verse has been referenced in support of ideas that are out of line with and not consistent with Paul's teaching and Paul's theology. And so ironically, this verse that was courageous and countercultural in Paul's context is occasionally taken by our church today out of its context and applied in ways that Paul never intended. And we usually do this because we're motivated by not being countercultural in our context. And so for these two reasons, I want to focus on verse 28 and I want to ask four questions. Why is Paul saying it? What is Paul saying? When is Paul saying it? And how can Paul say it? Okay, so first, why is Paul saying it? Okay, so before we even think about what he said, what he said is obvious enough to ask, why did he say it? There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male and female, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. Why is Paul saying it? As you read through chapter 3, verse, 20, verse 28 is a somewhat bizarre uh, verse. It doesn't seem as though it fits. It's not that verse 28 is related. It's actually very logically connected to what goes before it, but it's somewhat unexpected. You're like, why did Paul say that there? Paul is writing this incredibly deep, and you might say advanced theology on justification and on the Old Testament law and on Moses and on Abraham and on the covenants. And he's, and he's telling the church and us, he's saying, this is how all of that relates to Jesus Christ. This is how all of that relates to faith in Jesus Christ. And of all the places that he could go next, he goes here. 
And the question is, why? Why why would Paul need to stop and say, when it comes to salvation in the gospel, there's no distinction along racial, social, and gender lines? Why, Why would he need to say that? Because in short, Paul's cultural context and Paul's theological opponents would have seen massive differences between these groups of people. And to be frank, uh, the cultural context for Paul and his opponents theologically would have seen more value, more worth, and more dignity in Jews, non-slaves, and men. To go a step further, the false teachers from Jerusalem who had infiltrated the churches in Galatia, they didn't even think it was possible for a Gentile a non-Jew, to be saved. So remember that knowing the context of a letter is important to understanding the letter. A letter is always written from a particular author to a particular audience to accomplish particular goals. So when studying an epistle, particularly an epistle by Paul or Peter or John, it's, it's really helpful to say, what motivated Paul to write this to this person, this church, and these churches? So think about the context. Paul is writing to his church plants who had been infiltrated by and influenced by false teachers. And we know from the book of Galatians and we know from the book of Acts that his opponents were teaching the following. If you want to be justified, if you want to be declared righteous by God, if you want to be accepted in his sight, if you want to truly be blessed by God, if you want to truly be a part of God's family, if you want in, you have to obey the Old Testament law and you have to become a Jew. What was the one uh, thing the so-called Judaizers wanted the Galatians to commit to doing? We know from the book of Acts, and we know from the book of Galatians. The one thing they wanted was not obedience to the Ten Commandments. The one thing they wanted was not the obedience to, to the golden rule, the summary of the Ten Commandments. The one thing they wanted was circumcision. The false teachers were known as the party of circumcision. The ultimate thing the false teachers were fighting for was was circumcision. Why? Because circumcision was a part of the Old Testament law, and it was something that a man could do today, uh, uh, saying that I intend to obey all of the law tomorrow. It was something I could proactively do today, indicating that I will do the law tomorrow. But also relevant for today, circumcision was something that was unique to the Jewish culture at the time. And so these newly converted Gentile Christians were being told that not only do you have to keep the law to be saved, you have to become Jewish to be saved. And and the false teachers could not imagine that God would bless a Gentile, that God would let a a non-Jew into his family. That was inconceivable for them. And so why was Paul stopping and saying it? Because first, his opponents in the context of Galatia were saying, Greeks can't be saved until they become Jews. But in addition to that, racism, classism, and sexism, devaluing people because of race, class, and gender was a rampant and applauded reality in the Greco-Roman culture and in the Jewish subculture of that culture. As an example from Jewish culture, listen to this. We know from Jewish writings from the same time period that male Jews, as part of their daily prayers, prayed this. We have multiple copies of this prayer in writings from the first century. God, I thank you that I was not created as a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. 
In the worldview of the false teachers, Jews had more value than Gentiles. Slave owners and or employers had more value than slaves and or employees. And men had more dignity than women. It would be like me praying today with a very sincere heart, God, I thank you that you sovereignly chose, me, chose to make me a white employer who is a man instead of a fill in the blank. And now as outlandish as that sounds to our ears, you won't find anything like what Paul is saying in any culture of his day. The concept of no value distinction along racial, class, and gender lines is a radical, radical thing for Paul to say in his day and age. And so why is Paul saying it? Because he's sharing the good news of God's blessing with the Galatians. And it would have been easy for them to fall into the framework and the paradigm of their day. It would have been easy for the the man to think this way. God is to some degree doing this for me because I'm a man. And, and to some degree, God is doing this for me as a man because I'm more valuable than a woman. And, and into the context in which he's writing, it would have been easy for a woman, for example, to think, I'm not sure what to do. Uh, I'm not sure if God will do that for me or not. I'm not as valuable as a man. So are all these promises about the gospel true for me as well? And so Paul knows that this is the framework and the worldview of the audience to whom he is writing. And so to some degree, That's why he stopped and put verse 28 in the middle of this theologically thick chapter in Galatians 3. But secondly, let's ask, what is Paul saying? And what I want to do is not so much focus on what what Paul says isn't true or isn't the case. I want to focus on what Paul says is true or is the case. So put your thinking cap on. When you read the first portion of verse 28, you're forced to ask this question, in what way is this true? I mean, why are you forced to ask that question? (laughs) Because there are, in fact, different ethnicities. There are, in fact, different classes. And there are, in fact, men and women. So right away, you have to ask, in what way is this true? How is this true? Where is this true? Paul is making a statement of fact. And so we have to ask, where and how is this factually true? Paul is not saying this is, a true, this is true in every realm and in every way and in every spirit, sphere you can think of. He's saying this is true in Galatians 3. Verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for since because you are all one in Christ Jesus. So if you look at these surrounding verses, you're going to see that Paul's main idea is this, that in the gospel, God's people go from under the law to justified in Christ Jesus. God's people in the gospel have gone from being held down by the law to being set free and declared righteous in their union with Jesus. And so if you remember what we said last week, we said that God's purpose in giving the Old Testament law, God's intent was to convince his people that they could never earn their salvation through obedience to the law. And the intention of the law was to make God's people desperately needy for him to come and to fulfill his promise to them given to Abraham. And so if you remember, we, we illustrated Paul's point in Galatians 3 this way. We said that, that, that by, by saying that the law uh, is a guardian and that the law is, 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 a, is a jailer, Paul is essentially saying that the law is like a CAT scan. That the law cannot restrain cancer well, said within our illustration, a CAT scan cannot restrain cancer. 
it can only reveal the presence of cancer that is there. And so remember we said that the purpose of the law was not to produce righteousness or even to restrain sinfulness in God's people, but the purpose of the law was to reveal their sinful state to them. And so in Galatians 3, Paul says that God's people before Christ were under the law, verse 23, under sin, verse 22, under a curse, verse 11. That the law was a jailer, verse 23. That the law was a guardian, verse 24. And the law was given for the purpose of holding God's people captive and escorting the people to Jesus. But Paul says this about our relationship to Jesus. Not that we're under him, but that we've been led to him, verse 24. That we're in him, verse 26. That we're baptized into him, verse 27 that we're clothed by him, verse 27, that we belong to him, verse 29. So this is the way in which the factual statements of verse 28 are true. This is the realm in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male and female. When it comes to justification, being declared righteous by God, when it comes to being out from under the law and out from under the curse of the law, when it comes to our union with Jesus and all the benefits of that union, when it comes to receiving the inheritance promised to Abraham, in these ways and in this realm, there is no distinction among us. For, since, because, we're all one in Jesus Christ. I think the single best way to understand what Paul means in verse 28 is to see the close grammatical connection between the end of verse 28 and the end of verse 26. If you have your worship folder insert, please look at it uh, with me now. Look at the end of verse 28. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now look at the end of verse 26, which can from the Greek be rendered in the following word order. For you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. And so in what way are we all one in Christ Jesus, verse 28? We're all sons of God in Christ Jesus, verse 26. And so some translations read this, we're all children of God. But that robs Paul's point. While the Bible does teach that we're all children of God, while the Bible does teach that we're sons and daughters of God, 1 John 3, Paul here is very clearly using a masculine word for sons in the Greek In fact, Paul is using here and in verse 29 a technical term used in adoption and used in inheritance in first century Rome. Paul is saying this, in the gospel of Jesus, God adopts into his family and God gives the full rights of sonship to Jew and Gentile, to slave and free, to male and female. In the Greco-Roman culture, daughters could not receive an inheritance Girls were not adopted in this culture. They were purchased as slaves. In the Greco-Roman culture, slaves could not receive an inheritance from their master regardless of how the master felt about them. And Paul is saying when it comes to adoption and when it comes to inheritance, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male and female, four cents because you're all one in Christ Jesus, four cents because you're all sons of God in Christ Jesus. So now, my female friends, please don't be offended by Paul saying here and in other passages like Ephesians 1 that you're a son of God. Because the Bible does say you're a daughter of God, and the Bible does say that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, but in regards to your adoption and in regards to your inheritance in the gospel, the Bible says you're a son. 
That's fantastic news. You're as much an heir as the men who are justified by faith in Jesus. In the same way that a man's maleness is not under attack when we're said to be part of the bride of Christ, your femaleness is not under attack when you're said to be a son. Every culture of Paul's day would have thought it was crazy to say that women had as much value as men. And yet Paul has the audacity right here to say that's exactly what is true with God and with his gospel. There is no male and female when it comes to justification, salvation, adoption, inheritance, and the eternal blessing of God. And so first, why is Paul saying it? Because in the culture of their day and in the context of the debate between Paul and the false teachers, the Galatians wouldn't have automatically assumed, they would not have automatically assumed that classism, racism, and sexism was contrary to the gospel. These things were rampant and respected in their day. And so Paul has to speak directly to it. And then second, what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that the realm in which there is no distinctions, because it can't be true of everything, he's saying the realm in which this is true is the realm of justification and adoption and blessing in Jesus. But third for today, when is Paul saying it? I mean, to be really blunt and to put my cards right down on the table, I want to be clear about what Paul is not saying in Galatians 3, particularly about gender as it relates to marriage and to the church. Remember how I said in the introduction something like this. Galatians 3.28 has become one of the more popular verses in Galatians and is often, often referenced, I would say thankfully, in ways that are in line with Paul's intent. So, so the church is learning to use this verse to increase our mission, to say anyone and everyone can be saved. God is saving anyone and everyone. Let's go get them. The church is using this verse to increase our understanding of the dignity of all men and women in every strata. That's a really good thing. This verse is being used to decrease racism, to decrease classism, to decrease sexism, and any other ism that we suffer with. But this passage is also occasionally referenced regretfully in ways far removed from Paul's intent. And I don't want to I want to carefully and quickly address some of this now. I would suspect that some of you will be lost by how I've written this. I will suspect that some of you will know exactly what I'm saying by how I've written this. When is Paul saying it? What's the topic? The topic is justification, not who can be married. The topic is union with Christ by faith, not who leads in a marriage. The topic is being eternal co-heirs with Christ, not who God calls to provide authority in his church. I mean, again, think about it this way. In verse 28, there are no commands. It's not as if Paul's addressing a sin. There are no commands. There are only statements of fact. Paul doesn't say there shouldn't be Jew and Greek. He says that in your justification, there's no Jew and Greek. Which means that your value as a human being is not based on your Jewishness or your Greekness. Also, the Bible celebrates cultural diversity, and God, would, he, God has no plans of, of obliterating our cultural diversity. God is not going to do away with our cultural diversity. These cultural diversities will be part of the new heavens and the new earth. So, further, he's, he's just making a statement about a realm. 
Further, Paul doesn't say that there shouldn't be any distinction between male and female. Nor, Nor does he command us to stop thinking in the categories of male and female. He says that there is no male and female. How can that statement possibly be true? Only in the topic at hand. My point is this, while there are implications on marriage, this text is not about marriage. And so this text cannot overrule those those biblical passages that are directly about marriage. And while there, there are implications about how authority is played out in the church, this text is not about the officers of a church. And so this text cannot overrule the Bible passages that are directly about church authority. I, I had a cordial and delightful conversation, and you will know that this was from God because this never happens to me. Not the cordial and delightful conversation. <laughs> but I was actually talking to the person next to me on a plane. They were persistent on conversation. It was driving me nuts. <laughs> and somehow, about 15 minutes into the conversation, I found them arguing for, debating for, something that clearly contradicts Paul's teaching and God's commands and other passages of Scripture. And they said to me this, I guess at the end of the day on this topic, I choose to listen, listen to Galatians 3.28 instead of passage X, which was the verse that commands the opposite of their position. And then they said, it seems to me that Paul changed his mind on this matter. That we have to give Paul the space to grow and to develop and to mature. And so we have to understand early on that Paul was going along with culture, and towards the end, he decided to not stay with culture, but to align himself with Christ. To which I said, you know, of course, which letter was written first, right? They had to admit they hadn't thought about it, although their entire position was based upon it. And I said to them, I'm preaching through Galatians, and I'm studying liberal and conservative theologians, some more liberal than me that I just want to vomit when I read it, and some more conservative than me, and I just want to vomit when I read it. And every one of them agree that this is Paul's first book, not his last book. When is Paul saying it? Is Paul saying this some years later after writing other commands that speak directly to gender roles and marriage and in the church? Is he saying, I changed my mind, there's now no male and female? No, he's saying in his first letter, there's no male and female. Get that before I write anything else in any other letter. Point three, when is Paul saying it? Well, first, he's saying it on the topic of justification, adoption, and inheritance in Jesus. And second, in terms of timing, it's not that Paul wrote other things in other letters and changed his mind here. But what Paul writes about gender is fundamental in and foundational to everything else he writes about males and females in every other book that he writes and how they relate to one another in the fellowship of Christ. They're not contradictory, but they're purposeful. The roles he asks us to fill in marriage and in the church have nothing to do with our value, our worth, and our dignity. Our roles are secondary to and flow out of our identity in Jesus Christ. And so, for example, when Jesus in his word asks husbands to lead their wives as the head of the home like Christ leads his church, that is sacrificing himself for her and serving her. And when Jesus in his word asks wives to submit to their husbands as to the Lord, he is not valuing or devaluing anyone. 
He is not honoring or dishonoring anyone. He is not making a statement about worth or lack of worth. He's not making a statement about equality or lack of equality. He's giving direction to two people who have been given equal dignity, equal value, and equal worth in becoming sons of God with Christ in the gospel. And he says, now that that is true, this is how I want you to relate to each other as you advance my kingdom. Finally for today, how can Paul say it? So I realize that there are multiple risks in talking about what a passage is not about. And one such major risk is that we'll focus our attention too much on what it's not about and miss what is gloriously true about the passage. And so in light of that, I want to go back and I want to remember what Paul said and I want to ask, how can Paul say it? In other words, the truth found in this text is so beautiful and so freeing. How can we know that it's true? So let's review. Paul wrote into a context that assumed that a person's value was based on their race, their class, and their gender. And while most of us ideologically agree with Paul in our minds, in our lives we'll have to admit that we still functionally live as if this is some degree true. All of us to some degree are racist, classist, and sexist. We are this way because we were created to have our identity established in a loving relationship with God. And so when we sinned against God and when we rebelled against God, we lost that relationship with God and the identity that came with it. And so we all look to created things like race, class, and gender. And we either hate ourselves for who we are or we love ourselves for who we are. And Paul writes into that context then and now, and he says, in the gospel of Jesus, there's no Jew nor Greek, there's no slave nor free, there's no male and female. That in the gospel of Jesus, we're all sons of God, we're all adopted, we're all connected to God in loving relationship, we're all destined for the same inheritance. And Paul says, if we understand that, we'll be free from racism, classism, and sexism. If we understand that, we'll be free from valuing and devaluing based on race, class, and gender. Think about how enlivening this is. Think about how freeing this is. If our acceptance is only by grace through faith in Jesus, then all of us, regardless of our race and our class and our gender, all of us have the same standing before God. And if we have the acceptance and the delight and the love of God, who ultimately cares what the culture says about us? Or said differently, how can we ever think more highly of ourselves than another human being, especially a believer? How can we ever think more highly of ourselves than another human being because of our race or our class or our education or our clothes or our looks or our abilities, our success or our gender? How can we think more highly of ourselves when both of us are accepted by God, both of us are enjoyed by God to the same degree, and both of us are welcomed into his presence utterly apart from any of these realities? Further, how can I ever think lowly of myself compared to someone else, but especially a believer? How can I ever think lowly of myself because of my race or my class or my lack of education or my lack of looks or my lack of abilities or my gender? How can I think less of myself compared to someone else who has cultural advantages over me when God says he delights in me? I'm saying to the Father, having your approval is nice. And being adopted by you is nice. And having an inheritance in Jesus is nice. But it's not as nice as if I were that race or as if I played that role in the church or if I had that calling 
in your kingdom. Do you see how liberating and freeing the gospel is? If it's actually true that we're all sons of God, then do you see how this obliterates racism, classism, and sexism? It both humbles us to the ground to think we're better than anyone else and lifts us up to the skies to think that God thinks so much about us. And if these things are true, it still hurts, it still stinks, it's still no fun, it's still dead wrong. But this is God's response to us as we experience valuing and devaluing based on anything other than who we are in Christ. And so if this is freeing and liberating, if it's humiliating and also exalting, how can we know for sure that it's true? How can Paul say it? On the cross, after living a perfect life, free of any sin, free of any racism, free of any classism, free of any sexism. Jesus Christ, who should have been blessed by God, was experiencing the curse of God for us on the cross. And when Jesus prayed to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, the answer to that question is that God was forsaking him so that he could accept us. But what's so stunning about the prayer of Jesus is this is the only prayer of Jesus in the Gospels where he says, my God and my God, instead of my Father. What does this tell us? That on the cross, Jesus is disowned and Jesus is disinherited so that we could be adopted and so that we could be made heirs in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How can Paul say it? How can it be true? It's true because in the gospel of Jesus at the cross, he didn't get what he deserved, the blessing of the perfect son, so that we could get what we don't deserve, the blessing of the perfect son. Let's pray. Most gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this fact that nothing in us recommends us to you. We thank you that nothing in our story or nothing in the place in which you've placed us has anything to do with you setting your affections upon us in the gospel. We thank you, God, that in Jesus Christ, we have righteousness and acceptance and value and worth and beauty and dignity. We thank you that these have been bestowed upon us by your gracious gift and they are not anything we can add to and they are not anything that can be taken from us. We thank you, God, for how freeing this is to learn to live as sons of God. We also thank you for how motivating this is to get into our world and to fight for what you value and for what you care about and for what's important to you, even when it's countercultural. God, we pray that you give us your Holy Spirit, that we would see in the, the, this passage and in every passage the glorious riches of your gospel. We pray that we would see Jesus in every verse and that having been saved by Jesus and in being saved by Jesus, we might move out into our world living like Jesus. We pray that you would give us great wisdom in how to live in the world but not of the world. We pray that you'd give us great wisdom in how to live as citizens of heaven but salt and light in this world. God, we realize this will take much wisdom from you, much direction from you, much grace from you, 
as we all make mistakes along the way. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.